The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Hey geeks, Adam Kavanacci here to give you an introduction to our Superhero Summer series of podcasts. What is this exactly? Well, on our Patreon, we had a series called 90s Super Cinema that was part of our Heroes in Motion tier. We decided to discontinue that tier and just bring it in to all our $5 patrons, get an extra bonus podcast where we cover superhero and comic book related movies that are voted on by our patrons. So we had done four episodes episodes that were in the vault, but we are now releasing them to you throughout this summer, giving you a little bit of a taste of what this series is about. And what is it about? Well, it's Michael and I, along with his buddy Pete from the Box Office 30 podcast. We all love movies, especially growing up as kids in the 90s, looking forward to every superhero or comic book related film. And so it's us just having kind of a free-form discussion about these movies. And so it's, it's very different from the format of the regular podcast, but you might enjoy that kind of just casual feel, just friends having a chat after watching a film. This is something that you could expect going forward throughout this summer as we go on vacation. We're going to give you a chance to dive in and hear what we're thinking about. But if you like what you hear and you would like to get more of this type of discussion, hop on over to patreon.com forward slash wizards comics, join our $5 tier. And in addition to these bonus episodes, you're going to get all the other perks of being a patron, uncut early release episodes, full scans of the issues, so much fun. So go ahead and get ready. We're kicking off Superhero Summer with our our look at 1995's Batman Forever. And welcome to a very special episode. This is 90s Super Cinema. Oh, for those of you who are not part of our original Patreon, this was uh, a bonus series that we put together because we love movies. We love comics. We love movies about comics. We love at least talking about movies about comics. <laughs> and uh, so this was the perfect way to do that. It doesn't fit into our normal format, but it's a great way to uh, to get a conversation going with knowledgeable people. And speaking of knowledgeable people, Michael, who is going to join us in this series? My other partner in crime on my Box Office 30 podcast, Pete is here to join us. And instead of these two clowns leading us, I want to lead the charge on a conversation about this movie because it's a movie, guys. It's uh, oh, it's uh, so how you doing, Pete? Good, hello, hello out there. I, I hey, I'm just happy every time I get to do one of these podcasts where I don't have to sit and write all the uh, stuff up uh, and, and edit it afterwards. So, yeah, we should uh, mention that good. this is going to be a very free form podcast. We're not structured here. This is just like three friends talking about a movie that we just watched again for the first time in a long time. And uh, <laughs> like Michael said, there's a lot to get into. So, Michael, can we, before we get into the movie itself, I do just want to ask, putting ourselves back in 1995, what was your your anticipation though for okay. batman forever after batman returns had come out so i want to actually talk about this a little bit because 
I'm a big fan of movie posters, as most of us are. And to me, this had the second best movie teaser poster next to the Batman Returns teaser poster of just the cowl ears. And I have that poster in my basement right now of the question mark leading into the bat symbol. Now, am I insane in thinking that I got that for you? Might have gotten it for you. I I was trying to remember because I was going to bring that up and I I, could be totally off base, but I think I had found that and got that. That was like one of the first things I gave you. In our I, early I, portion of our friendship, if I remember I'm correctly. I'm like 95% sure you did get it for me because I'm like, I don't remember ever buying this on eBay. And just magically, I'm like, I don't have this in a frame, but I do have it. So I was over the moon thrilled about this movie, especially when you would read in the trades or you'd read in Wizard, like what would possibly come about of it. And my thought of like seeing Billy D. Williams potentially becoming Two-Face was a big deal for me. And then, you know, originally it was Robin Williams as the Riddler. And I was really excited about that. And, you know, when those things changed and then the first reveal we find out was, you know, Jim Carrey was going to be the Riddler. I was like, oh, Jim Carrey would be amazing. You know, Tommy Lee Jones was, I think he was like fresh off of The Fugitive or something like that. I was like, oh, Tommy Lee Jones is bigger than life and fantastic. And then, I really like Chris O'Donnell and I liked Val Kilmer at the time. And, you know, Nicole Kidman was Nicole Kidman. Like she was huge. And I was overly excited about this movie. In fact, I have a childhood friend. His name is Harold. And we've known each other since I was probably about five or six years old. He's like my surrogate older brother. My His dad and my dad are very, very close. Pete's met him. We've gone to football games with him. He was like a senior in high school when I was Old, like in 95 for me to go to this movie. Maybe he's even a little bit older than that. And I remember him picking me up and bringing me to the theater. And we stood in line waiting to go to the movie. And he was as excited about Batman as I was. And I was super jazzed about it. And we both kind of came out of the movie after. We're like, okay. <laughs> it wasn't what we expected. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because like definitely for me, like you're saying that, you know, the poster is setting you off. You're so excited by that. And you you see the cast. That's the anticipation. For me, it always comes into the tie-in promotions. Like for whatever reason, if- A good if McDonald's happy meal for it you. It is 100% <laughs> the McDonald's glasses, okay? Because yes. I, yeah, I have a full <laughs> set of these. So the beautiful, uh, I I think the Two-Face one is the best with the coins as the yeah. handle. I but have the my display cases back there, yeah. Yeah, you know, and putting the Riddler with the question mark as the handle and, of course, getting Robin and all that. But I will say, it's strange to me because Batman Returns was such, like, a debacle, especially with McDonald's. There was, like, this controversy. I'm so surprised they kept the promotion when Batman Forever came around. But they did such a wonderful job with it, like, with the actual fry boxes that were black and had the cool logo you were talking about, Michael, and all that. But also, when the casting came around, the one thing that I was most excited about anything, because if I cared about Batman, really, I cared about Robin. Tim Drake Robin. And when they released the first photos of Chris O'Donnell in a costume that was reminiscent, at least, of the Tim Drake Robin outfit, the new redesign, I was over the moon. I was just like, I can't believe it. They're doing it. So that was like, I was going to see Robin, and that was basically it. Everybody else was going to be fine, but I needed that. Hold that thought for later, because I've had a very exciting surprise to reveal to this podcast. (laughs) We'll save that for toward the end. Well, let let me jump in there real quick, though, because you just held up your McDonald's cups and like McDonald's is the key here. This movie does not happen and become the movie that it is if it weren't for McDonald's being upset over how dark Batman Returns was, you know, so 
I, I think that's really interesting that like, and of course, like Hollywood always works a little bit this way, but in kind of like my recollection, I'm hard pressed to think of something changing so tonally from one thing to the next due to a fast food chain. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it, it's, it's crazy. I mean, like, you know, Mike, I'm sure you're probably more an expert on this than I am, but you know, like this is why Tim Burton wasn't attached to this anymore. He produced, but you know, yeah. like everybody he, he says he, he like, never showed like, up on like set. Like Chris Nolan <laughs> produced, you know, yes. Batman. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <Batman> Superman. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, yeah, just a name only, right? And I know, like, you know, between him and like Akiva Goldsmith and things like, you know, Elements came over for um, what was going to be Batman Continues, the third yes. movie. But, you know, they don't become ultimately with it because we went from noir batman to neon batman you know and like everything kind of changed with that and you know everybody has their their ups and downs on it me personally i think this is maybe my favorite of the early batch of batman movies and i know like you're just like we need to have a talk later you know but on that I, note. I, I think again it's a product of like how old i was and like you know my attachment to batman and we've talked about this before that my in on Batman was Batman 66. So that's all I knew. I didn't know the Dark Knight Returns. You know, I didn't know any of, of that sort of stuff at that point. So for me, it was like the bright night, you know, not the dark night that, that was like um, sort of leading the thing there. And I had never seen the original Batman movie. It just came out ahead of when I would have been old enough to see it. Your parents took you a little <laughs> more before me, I guess. Yes, and, did. Uh, I did. Seven-year-old me. <laughs> I know you saw um, Returns for your um, birthday, but I also saw it at a friend's birthday. You know what I mean? And, you know, we, we've talked all this before. When Christopher Walken gets fried at the end, I'm like, ah, you know, like hiding, <laughs> hiding, you know, from the screen and everything. But as you said, I mean, like, this is like a product of exactly the time it was created in and this weird set of circumstances where they said, we can't go dark again. We need to go light. And Batman is such the epitome of that happening. Like that character throughout time shifts from like you know being very grim when that first comes out you know in detective comics and then ultimately getting lightened up the over 50s, time yeah. and then you know getting dark again and like you know the 80s and it's like you know the same thing i guess happens with the movies here but yeah i mean for me like you know just saw ace ventura so i'm like a big fan of jim carrey i probably didn't have as big a knowledge or respect for tommy lee jones i guess at that point maybe but well, i saw the fugitive in the drive-in and it was i thought this guy was awesome so that's what it was and it certainly he is, you know what I mean? Funny enough, like given that I just said this is maybe my favorite of the Batman, the early Batman movies, this is probably my least favorite Tommy Lee Jones movie. Oh, <laughs> you know? yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, we're going to get into that. Yeah, we got to discuss that for so, sure. So this was a film that had an estimated $100 million budget, which was actually slightly lower than the original Batman movie was. And I wonder if they just held back money because they were afraid this was going to tank because people weren't thrilled about Batman Returns. And it had an opening weekend uh, domestic and Canadian box office of 52784000 a U.S. and Canadian gross of a total of $184.6 and a global worldwide gross of three hundred and thirty six million five hundred and sixty seven thousand 
We're so, getting into the box office 30 of it all. I know. I figured, you know what? We're, we're doing this little cross-universe thing. I figured yeah. I got to do a little bit of, you know, some of the math that we talk about. And I was sitting there thinking about, like, by today's standards, if a movie was $100 million to make, plus it must have been double that in the marketing, I would assume, $336 million is almost a loss in a way like they didn't know this movie. movie was a big success oh i know critically it was, but... and financially and as a matter of fact my little box office stat for you and i don't have the exact number in my head but it's something like 150 million more in earnings than batman returns oh, okay. so this really turned things around for them this was like they were going ew and then it's like right back up again you know so uh i i think it's it's hard to, to you know go by these things by our standards you know i think the the hard and fast rule I usually use for our box office 30 math is you take the number and you essentially double it if you want to yeah. know how much it made, you know, these days. So, yeah, it's not doing like a billion dollars like, you know, most of our superhero movies are these days. But this is also during a time where superhero movies are not really a thing yet again, you know. Also, you know, there, there was a lot of talk about the casting of this movie and, you know, Michael Keaton backed out of the movie and they grabbed Val Kilmer. And do you know the story as to why they grabbed Val Kilmer? Let's I think I had heard that, um, I mean, maybe it's more interesting and complex than this, but I had heard that he was really into him from having seen Tombstone. Yes, it was It was a lot to do with Tombstone, exactly. Joel Schumacher was like, this guy could be Batman. And Joel Schumacher has this thing, I guess. He, he does this for Val Kilmer, and he also does this later for George Clooney. He's like looking them up in a movie poster and draws ears on them to see how they would look in a cow. <laughs> the story. And he called them up. He said, hey, you know, let's do it. You, do you know that there was a lot of people up for the role of Robin? You know, Chris O'Donnell was not the number one choice initially. Do you guys know, you know, who was up for Robin? Please well, tell me Jonathan Brandis is in there. <laughs> Jonathan Brandis, come on. Hot off of Ladybugs. <laughs> I mean, an interesting note before we jump far off Val Kilmer, too, and this is just a kind of a funny anecdote that I heard about this, which is that I'm trying to think of what the movie was that he was prepping to do. I don't think it was Congo. It was another one. But he was when he got the call from his agent that they want you to do this. He was literally in South Africa in a cave full of bats when he got the call. So I was like, that's really kind of cool. That's a little fortuitous, you know, a little like yeah, really. wink from the universe. Was it the ghost know? in the darkness? Did he do ghost that? Michael Douglas. Thank you. Yes, yeah. that's ah, exactly what it such is. Such a good movie. <laughs> such a good movie. So originally Rene Russo was supposed to play Chase Meridian. Was I could see that. Yeah, which I totally dug. And um, my understanding, the only reason that they switched off of her is that they were going to pair her up with um, Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton, and then when you have the age difference between Michael Keaton and um, ultimately Val Kilmer, they decided they wanted to go with somebody a bit younger to try and and more more closely match him. Which then is interesting when you're talking about Rob. <laughs> and, and you know, again, I'm sure we'll each have our grievances with this movie, but. 23-year-old Robin trying yeah. to play as like 17. 15, 16, 17 just did not work. That scene where he like steals the Batmobile and all these people are like, oh, you're like a kid. And it's just like, no, he's not. He no, looks the same not. as you. <laughs> Listen to the people who wanted to play Robin, or at least for, up for the role. Originally, Marlon Wayans was supposed to be it for Batman Returns. Right. And, you know, that obviously never happened. But for this movie, they wanted Leonardo DiCaprio, Matt Damon, Corey Haim or Corey Feldman, <laughs> um, Mark Wahlberg, Michael Wirth, Danny Dyer, Toby Stevens, Ewan McGregor, 
Jude Law, Alan Cumming, and here's the wildest one, Christian Bale. Well, here's a funny part, too, because all four of those last ones that you mentioned, all British actors, weren't terribly big, you know, recognizable people at the time. And they decided they wanted to cast this movie potentially internationally. So he saw all four of them in one day. And then they all went on to become who they become. So that's kind of like a cool little casting couch that day you know yeah for me it's like dicaprio like is definitely number one but he always seems a little bit more mature you want this guy to have like an edge to him that's a little bit more youthful so i don't i don't think that works as well but like the name that i'm surprised didn't pop up in there is brad renfro from this era because like if i don't know if you ever seen that tom and huck movie with jonathan taylor thomas but it just feels like he has the kind of energy that's a little bit mischievous he but he also you know has kind of you can hit the dramatic beats that are in this movie so it feels like he would have been a great because i said jonathan brandis earlier as an alternate casting but he's a little too sensitive i don't think he could hit like i'm a tough guy yeah watch this i'm wearing a leather jacket i think they're thinking in ultimately grabbing Chris O'Donnell and then outfitting him the way that they did throughout the movie. He's a tough biker dude. He's got his earring, which is like quintessential 90s. You know, I think they were like, we need to get that teen audience. We got to find somebody that's kind of cool to to do that, you know, because Robin, you know, great character, but can certainly be corny at times Mm -hmm. and can be really cool at other times. And so I think they had to kind of like ride the line between, you know, which version they were um, sticking in there, which is interesting too. Then that you made the point that like he more so resembles Tim Drake, you know, yeah. which is like that current Robin in that era. Well, in and... everything but the hair, and that's what yes. upset me so much when I <laughs> I saw the publicity photo. Like, oh, the costume's awesome, but then I was like, what? Why does he have a buzz cut? What is yeah. this? Like that upset me because Tim Drake's hair was like you know fifty percent of how cool he was. <laughs> and it really the same thing with with uh, Dick. You know, it, it it's like a, it was a weird thing with that buzz cut. I remember at the time thinking it was odd. <laughs> now I mentioned about Rene Russo, but before Nicole Kidman land the gig. They also auditioned Sandra Bullock, Robin Wright, Janine Triplehorn, and Linda Hamilton for the Chase Meridian role, which I found very surprising. Now, before Tommy Lee Jones got the role, and I'll tell you how he got the the role, which is very interesting, they also looked at Clint Eastwood, Al Pacino, Martin Sheen, and Robert De Niro. But because Schumacher liked Tommy Lee Jones in the movie The Client where he also plays a lawyer that's like the role of being two-faced the lawyer that is crazy because i was a hundred percent sure it was under siege because he's playing the exact same character in under siege that he's doing here yeah Yeah. now can i bring up a a um two-faced complaint in this movie because i don't know if i i don't know if i hadn't noticed this before this isn't a tommy lee jones specific complaint this is more in how every other character refers to him as harvey two-face (laughs) which is so bizarre like i don't know that i've ever read in a comic anybody calling him anything other than harvey dent and or two-face you know like and and what was funny is i started watching a little bit of a behind the scenes thing and even in that they're referring to him like tommy lee jones is like oh i didn't know who harvey two-face was but my son did and he really wanted me to do it and i'm just like Harvey Two-Face, oh, stop saying it. It was making me itchy. <laughs> yeah, totally cringeworthy for me, too. I'm just like, it doesn't make sense. Like, why why would that come out at all? Like, you know what it's cool, and what's cool is Two-Face. Even the action figure from a few years earlier, in like 1990, it said Two-Face, not Harvey yeah. Two-Face. 
And it's like, you know, it, it's always been my mind that Batman uses you know edward or harvey in a way to like humanize them and try and like bring them back and particularly if you go off like the history of bruce wayne and harvey dent being good friends you know sort of a thing and they kind of play at that a little bit in this movie but you know it's yeah i don't know it's just bizarre harvey (laughs) two-face so now to round out all these because there was a i think this is very interesting about batman before they landed on val kilmer they actually offered the role to Ethan Hawke, who backed out. And then they looked at Alec Baldwin, Billy Baldwin. So they went through the Baldwins for a little while. <laughs> Dean Kane, Kurt Russell, which I could see, Ray Fiennes, Johnny Depp, Daniel Day-Lewis, and here's the kicker, Tom Hanks. <laughs> Before they landed on Val Kilmer in the in the cave oh, of Oh, that is crazy to me. Wow, like because yeah, none of those feel like they would work very well. I don't know. You know what? I'd, I'd uh, kind Tom of Hanks like to see. Batman. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd kind of like that, but I'd kind of like to see a Daniel Day Lewis version that could that could be kind of interesting to be what honest. would his method acting have been he's like i must earn billions of dollars and live in a mansion for a few months so i understand yeah, yeah. sitting up on gargoyles in the city yeah <laughs> so i just find this like literally anybody in hollywood they were trying to see who they would get to, to i mean the only thing i'll say is obviously i'm a huge fan of the shadow i have a whole shelf full of shadow merchandise from that movie and alec baldwin basically was auditioning with the shadow you know to play batman so he could have worked but uh and especially in this where it has that tinge of humor to it he's very good with that type of stuff so of the list he's the one that would have made the most sense to me but at the same time i don't know i I just he still doesn't quite have the erudite nature. Like he, he doesn't, he's, he's very like, Hey, I'm New York. You know, yeah. he's still got the gruff nature. So that's basically it. I mean, there was a, other people other than Robin Williams. They looked at before Jim Carrey, including Kelsey Grammer, Matthew Broderick, Phil Hartman, Steve Martin, Adam Sandler, and Rob Schneider. Oh no. <laughs> Adam Sandler is the Riddler. I'll tell you on the uh, on the Robin Williams front it's my understanding he was up for Joker in the first movie too and I think he was like pretty upset with them because essentially he was like all right well we're gonna go with Nicholson with the first movie but we'll have you back for the second movie you know sort of thing and they didn't bring a character in there and then when he was up for this again they didn't so like after that he was like really mad at warner brothers for kind of screwing him out of it multiple times you know he was basically cast as the joker and then nicholson said i want to do it and they just kind of kicked robin williams to the side said oh we'll give you the riddler instead and he was going to do it until keaton backed out I'm curious on Schumacher being the choice's director. Do we know how that happened? Is there a reason he was selected? Because he seems kind of out of the box in a lot of ways. Like, you know, obviously he had done like the Lost Boys, you know, and he had done Falling Down. And the Lost Boys feels like the closest to this, I would say. But he'd never done something so like outlandish and like high octane, I feel like. So, well, I think the other thing that most people would have known him for at that point in time was music videos. You know, he used to direct a lot of music videos too. I don't really know the exact reason. If I had to guess, I would think it's a little to do with like visual style and, and wanting to sort of change the look a little bit. 
But I mean, that's just like a, a hot take. I don't yeah, really I'd know. I just love to know what his in was, and I guess it just was Warner Brothers because he had done a lot of movies at Warner's. So I guess that that would make sense. But uh, on the music video front, real quick before we start getting into the our likes and dislikes on the movie, I watched. Uh, you know, I haven't watched it for a long time, but the the video for Holy <laughs> Thrilly, Kiss Me, Kill Me, the U two song that is one of those videos that has stuck out to me all these years. Just the animation in that because so many music videos for movies they just cut in clips for the movie and it has that too but then when half of it is all brand new animation of bono as bono versus he's like he had this character that he did on the albums and like in concert during their zooropa period my my best friend jeff is like super youtube fan so he was always telling me showing me their videos and all this stuff and so it was so cool to kind of see how they were mixing in their own mythology with the batman mythology and like you know anyway it, it was just kind of fascinating the synergy between everything because i'm sure that wasn't necessarily written specifically for the movie but it was they're like yeah we could just use this well, the one that you know, was specifically written for the movie is Seal's kiss, song. Kiss Rome, yeah. Right? <laughs> kiss yeah. My, which is so bizarre because like, you know, <laughs> you know, a lot that of 90s was movies huge. had songs written specific <laughs> to the movie. And it was usually a big selling point leading up to the movie. They put out the single or they put out the album, whatever. But it has like nothing to do with, with the like movie. the characters or whatever but if you go watch the music video he's like on the batman set like singing in front of like the bat signal <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know it, it's weird Skirt from two angles it, it doesn't yeah. help the batman movie and then the batman movie doesn't really help him in his song you know like it's like it's bizarre. But also like was he a big draw because it's a great song but i'm just like he was not a huge artist other than that song. He's essentially a one hit wonder because of, you know, Kiss from a Rose. So that's what's he weird to be one awesome. Other song. He oh, he did he? One, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I remember him being like a thing during that period of time. There was a song before Kiss from a Rose, but it's I like... will admit that I only just found out like three or four years ago that it's the gray, not the grave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You yeah. always think it's like, yeah. It would make more sense. That would tie in. Like yeah. Bruce Wade's parents died. That's a big theme in the film. Yeah. That's his guilt. But yeah, all the gray. What? <laughs> so before we go into the talk about the movie though, this soundtrack was one of those soundtracks that they did this to try to appeal to every audience. Like you said, they had a U2 song, they had a SEAL song, they had like a, a grunge band on there that had uh I'm blanking on the name uh, the the album, the Batman Forever album. And there were so many different bands and groups in this movie. So like, yeah, they had Offspring. That's right. Offspring was in this thing. And Brandy had a song in this. Method Man had a song in this movie. They literally were like, let's grab somebody from every genre and put them on this album to sell CDs. Well, it is. And like, look, you know, like a couple of years back, more than a couple at this point, when Guardians of the Galaxies came out, you know, and like everybody's like, Oh, that, that was so cool. They put all this like great like 70s music in and it like really jazzed the movie and like it made everybody like, you know, like everybody had a new Pandora station that they're building off of that, you know what I mean? But like with that said, I think that's what they were going for with this too. I think that they were like looking at this franchise and going like, all right, we had a huge hit with the first one. We had a really kind of lukewarm, you know, not so great reception on the second. If we're going to keep this thing going, we got to like get out there and do it. And I think they put this like, you know, they moved away from score 
not totally, but a little bit more, and decided to kind of just stick a lot of this, like, you know, stuff M that was MTV going on at the time. You know? Yeah, but totally. And MTV is huge at this point, you know? So, like, I think they were just trying to cash in a bit on that, and I think in some ways it worked, you know? Well, it's interesting because, like, obviously with the first film, they made Danny Elfman a star. There was a score album separate from the Prince album, right? And, like, in, in this movie, like you're saying, like, some of those songs are used. I don't feel like all of them are in the movie by any <laughs> means. They're just, you know, music-inspired by the movie yes. Batman Forever. But for me, like, the score in this film... It isn't the Elfman score, and I totally forgot that. They don't even yeah. really call back to it at all. It's this no, Elliot Goldenthal. Like it's great. Like it's so bombastic. Obviously, it fits the film much better than yeah. the, you know, the drudgery of the Elfman score. The like here and there with with you know, we'll get into the difference between Schumacher and Burton filmmaking, but it's just like I love this score. I've been listening to it since I rewatched the film. I'm just like, this is fantastic. How did I not appreciate this? Oh, Michael. <laughs> You have an it opinion? Is, <laughs> it is a I will say it is a decent score. I think the score in cases works better than when they put the music in. Yes. I think certain places they didn't need the music and other places that the score could have been even more so. I think the music works best when we're in Riddler's house. Like the scenes where it's his just music, in the background. Yeah. Like, yeah, like I think the score would have been, I would have liked to hear that more than some of the, the pop songs, so to speak. But yeah, we can go on for days and days about that. <laughs> um, you know what's funny? You know what the score makes me think of? And to your point, Adam, same thing. I didn't go find the album to re-listen to, but I only just watched the movie today. So it's very fresh in my head. But um, I watched it this morning on my phone. <laughs> yes, I was like, I was like, I got to get this thing going here. Hey, I think it is a really cool step away from the Danny Elfman score. Like if you're not just going to rehash that or, or, you know, do some like slightly different variations on it, especially if you can't get Danny Elfman to show back up without Tim Burton for this. It makes me think of the video game. And I know whenever I, I say this to Michael, he has like a blank face on. So I'll ask you, Adam, did you play the Batman Forever game because it was actually a really damn good Batman game at the time. Well, I remember because the big selling point was it was kind of like, oh, remember how Mortal Kombat uses real people? They used real people in this game yes. as the models of the characters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, for those that might be um, not as familiar and, and same thing with Mortal Kombat, it's all video sprites. It's, it's like they literally film somebody. I, I should say film. It's almost more photographically done um, from the, the side. And then they, you know, turn them into sprites. They have all like the basic moves and little animations between them. And yeah, it, it was awesome. And they baked the score right into the game. And like, as I was sitting listening to the score, like for some reason it was evoking sitting there playing the game and like trying to remember <laughs> like, wait, how do you jump up to this level? Oh, you got to like hit down, down, you know, like it was like, you know, all those weird nineties video game quirks that I feel like we should do a whole other like podcast or video cast on the retro network about, but yeah, it, it was totally evoking that for me. And I was like, that's, that's awesome. You know, like it just, it, it's great how something like score can bring back like, you know, memories that you haven't thought about in like a good 30 years, you know, back for you. So that's pretty cool. Let's dive into the movie. And like I said, I've got a lot of thoughts because <laughs> this movie out of the gate was a dumpster fire for me. Why are you <laughs> opening with a joke? Do not open with a joke. That was. Uh, are you hungry, sir? I'll get drive through. Uh. And, and I'm like, Val Kilmer. I love Val Kilmer, but he can't sell a joke to save his life. He's great in Tombstone. He's great in Top Gun. He can't sell a joke in this movie if his life depended on it. And because 
Like he says it, he's got this really pouty lute. <laughs> okay, right. I think you have to blame the cowl for that. That was one of his complaints in having to play Batman. So okay, let's talk about the cowl for a second. That cowl, until he gets the sonar suit, does not look right on his head. It looks too <laughs> big, and it kind of like flails back and forth. The sonar suit kind of fixes all that later in the movie, but the main costume in the in the movie, it the body is fine, but the head kind of just it looks fine when he's standing still. Whenever he's in a running thing, it just kind of looks awkward on his Yeah, head. well, on, on the costume, I totally forgot that that original costume still had the yellow logo. I was, I in my mind, yeah. he always just had the bat across the chest that yeah. just blended in the same gray color. Like, I totally forgot, because that costume looks fantastic, it's I feel. Fantastic. like Wonderful. Other the than... is beautiful. Yes, like, all the is. cape work in this movie is fantastic. Minus the nipples. Let's 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 get the elephant <laughs> in the room out there, yeah. right? Nobody needed that. The, the <laughs> or that gratuitous butt shot. <laughs> you, know, you know, the butt shot, the nipples. I, I don't know what, the, like, Joel Schumacher says that he was trying to go for, like, the Greek god or, like, Greek right. Uh, there's a lot Spartan. of that in this movie like, lots like, of statues yeah like spartans and that kind of stuff and that kind of physique but again you don't need the nipples you don't need the butt shot the suit when he's just standing still that looks great and i actually think the way they do the chest emblem in the main costume that it's yellow but it's less yellow mm-hmm. than like the, the keaton ones i love it more and the also the symbol itself the bat Kind of sits a little bit forward from the, yeah from it's the got actual... dimension to it yeah. it's really neat yeah that's really really cool i also really like in this movie how he utilizes the utility belt better than they do in the keaton movies so like, many gadgets yeah so many gadgets so many things that he does with it though i you know i do love the 89 batmobile like there's no topping that for me i do like this batmobile a lot except when the Chris O'Donnell like flapped open thing, <laughs> and then and the things shake around. Yeah, like yeah. the bad ears. You know what, floppy and bad ears. <laughs> did you know that they had H.R. Geiger, um, famously of Cthulhu and and alien sort of designs? You know, they had him design a Batmobile for this movie. No, I didn't know that. The first it's... one looked phallic enough. What else could he do? Well, to this one is utterly bizarre, and it's known as the Red Scissors Batmobile. You can certainly go look it up, but it's 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 really weird. But there's your little fun fact. You know, yeah. I was surprised to see that, like, especially when they're getting away from darker designs and things like that, that they would call up who? H.R. Geiger, the guy that does, like, all the creepy, over-sexualized, dark designs. Yeah. <laughs> I don't hate this Batmobile, except the wing flapping and the bouncing. But I'm watching the, the car chase scenes in this movie, and they're so slow. The car <laughs> is so slow? slow. I mean, compared to what Burton was doing, though, like, this movie has does have a lot of car chases. You know, there's a lot of that going on. But it's just, it's so frenetic. Like, the cuts that Schumacher is doing, to me, it was, it was very exciting because I was just looking at, like, okay, in the Burton films, he kind of just, like, follows the car. Or in Batman Returns, it's mostly in the cockpit. And occasionally he shows the, the full Batmobile. But, like, in this, like, every angle Schumacher is using, like, every, you know, you're seeing every inch of the car at different points. And I, I really appreciated what he was doing to give the Batmobile the spotlight, but then to make the action feel like, okay, I'm in the middle of this. It's not just like, oh, Batman reacting the whole. So I, I wish they would have just upped the frame rate or something. I mean, it was going faster <laughs> because it just feels like they're just like having a leisure drive. To- you want the 60s Batman. <laughs> well, you know, it's like the, the problem you have 
that they don't really remedy until they start doing some of the more modern movies where they're shooting in places like Chicago or New York or whatever, which is that they're filming this on sets. You know what I mean? And like sets are only X, you know, (laughs) distance long. And so they kind of have to like, you know, do what they can to like not go barreling through the cardboard buildings, I guess. But uh... (laughs) as opposed to the tumbler, that's just doing like 80 down like... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, guys, one thing I wanted to bring up, because I did read the Batman Forever uh, comic book adaptation. I have it. I can't find it, but it's somewhere in my book. Either. Somewhere around, yeah. And so I read this, and I also listened to the audiobook. Now, the audiobook is read by Rene Abergenois, okay? So he is in this movie, and when I watched, I saw his name in the credits, I was like, where the heck is Odo? You know, most people know him as Odo from Deep Space Nine. I'm like, where is Rene Abergenois in this movie? He doesn't show up until the very end and he is dr burton at arkham asylum (laughs) he's the guy who basically looks like joel schumacher i was like what the little nod with the name (laughs) but the thing is he had a bigger role because in the audiobook and in here he is at the beginning there's the whole harvey escaping there's these deleted scenes two-face is getting out of arkham asylum and you got this dr burton character who's like consulted throughout the movie you know so it's just like you got to feel bad for the guy he's just like i have one line at the very end of the film and but then he got to read the book on tape so i don't know but like it's also, a good trade-off. Yeah. But the opening in this is really interesting in the book. Peter David wrote it. So I don't know how much he embellished, but like all the characters kind of have these pre-interactions. Like the Riddler character from childhood, they have a flashback where he's getting picked on. He gets beaten up. He goes into a coma. And when he wakes up, that's what made him basically kind of a little extra off. Wacko. Yeah, but he also then sees a newspaper ad, or ad, not an ad, an ad, your parents are dead, Bruce Wayne. No, he sees a, a story that about Bruce Wayne's parents dying and he sees a picture and he's like, Bruce Wayne, we have the same fire in our eyes. So like you see that it was a lifelong obsession, which is something you don't get in the film. And then they do the whole like Harvey and Bruce like being friends and having consultations and then Batman being involved. But then also there's a scene where Dick Grayson is out with his brother in Gotham when they're getting into town before the show and he rescues chase meridian from a mugging so you see he's got some skills and some bravery in that way too so there's there's just a lot of setup in those ways and a lot bigger dream sequence with bruce's nightmares as well there's a lot of that so but the whole opening like if that was in the original script i see why they cut it but it feels like it would have added another dimension to the movie that was a little heavier. More what I do know is that, like I said, Akiva Goldsmith was like kind of working on adapting what had already been like pretty fairly laid out groundwork set up by Tim Burton at all already with what they were going to do for Batman Continues. So if I had to guess, certainly some of the things that you mentioned are in fact, you know, there as deleted scenes and you can still go and find them on the Internet. And then some of the stuff you can find like different uh, things where they're talking about at least some of the the backstory, particularly of the Riddler. Like, you know, again, they ultimately ended up with him in this like, you know, he's working for, you know, Bruce Wayne and like the R&D division of like, I guess they, I think they said like the like the electronics division or something like that. You know, they had just won some grant or something. But they originally were like, and maybe you maybe you know about this. They were originally like writing him up as like a mad scientist and he had like a pet rat. And so they were going to have like him with like this pet rat throughout the movie. He had like some funny name. I can't think of what the heck it was. It, was it like Willard or was Winter? it Ten? Like 
I, I can, something that feels very tim burton like there's this movie willard yeah we'll make the riddler willard yeah yeah well and it comes from like the stuff that they were designing for it originally and then obviously they started scaling some of this stuff back so i would not be terribly surprised if a lot of that material that ends up in that book came from some of the early versions of what they were you know essentially planning to do beforehand you know an interesting kind of point on that with the riddler while we're talking about it does it strike you odd that the ultimate plot that we get from the Riddler here would much more suit the Mad Hatter. Oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah. With the mind control thing and yeah, all of that. You know, like yeah. sort of mind manipulation and digging around in people's thoughts and everything. Like it kind of struck. And again, like it, it's funny because we all sort of always look at these things like, oh, those characters have been around and, and popular forever. But the reality is, is, you know, Riddler was like a nothing character until, you know, the Frank Gorshin version, you know. And then I think that they were trying to like bring a little bit of that feeling back, you know, kind of jumping back to one of the first things you said, Mike, kicking this thing off. I think they're extremely well aware of the line that they're treading being half a serious Batman movie and half being a very campy, silly thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like in some of the stuff that I saw with them talking about it, it was like, they're like, you know, we don't want to do Batman 66, but we want to kind of like play in that sort of sphere a little bit. So I think that's where you get some of these goofy jokes, you know, and like, holy rusted metal, Batman, you know, <laughs> which, by the way. I if there's any quote I remembered from the movie, it was that one. It's that one for sure. But I didn't remember Batman's reactions to it, which is priceless. It's like holy rusted metal, Batman, huh? And then he's just like, well, it's it's rusted metal. It's got holes in it. Holy, you know, holy. And he it's goes full of holes. He goes, oh. <laughs> yeah he's so over it he's like okay you know, it was such a great reaction like i love that the the thing that i i find so interesting about this movie like you're saying because when we think of batman 66 it's the dutch angles right and there's some of that a little bit mixed in here and there but they they didn't overdo it but what they did have like is the lighting in this movie is out of control like the colored lights it is i mean here's the thing the neons, it's, the it's super stylized yeah but i i think it is so beautiful to look at it makes everything look awesome except for there's one shot i think it's when uh chase turns on the the bat signal you know the bat signal is not a beeper scene and when <laughs> when batman's coming off the ledge by the bat signal you can actually see the light with the blue gel on it right behind it and i was like what <laughs> like <laughs> this is a stage production now that's what it looks like it looks like theater it looks like broadway yeah, yeah a lot yeah, of but it to is, your point like stagey the... like you see it feels like sets yeah the art direction the stage setup for this i think it's one of the reasons i really like this movie it's it's got such a cool unique visual style to it and like when you really sit there and look at it you take like the riddler's lair at the end right he's got his like you know brainwave machine and everything but he's just got stuff in the background where it's just like a set of lights that are like alternating but it looks really cool it looks like there's like lightning or something happening or just, just the like, laser projections <laughs> of the you exactly know, yeah you know lots of fog machines happening in this film you know? <laughs> but it, it really does have and like even when you start getting into like costuming like tommy lee jones's outfits where you know certainly like you can say what you will about the face makeup you know i think it's been done better elsewhere but you know like this kind of like crazy neon purple you know face that's on like the scarred side and then like the suits that are like tailored to exactly half of it being like a normal suit and the other half being like these like wild slashes of color 
somebody was having a lot of fun designing this you yeah. know what i mean and like it's really punchy the, the and it really shows the dark knight <laughs> yeah well i mean like you know as compared to like dark dark night you know where it's like a lot of shadows and a lot of not seeing things fully you just had a face on that was like eh. I, I, <laughs> you got no time for it i absolutely hate it so much i, oh. I hate so much of this movie i hate the neons on the machine guns of, of two faces goons I hate so much. Like, <laughs> and you always you know, have, basically. Oh, but but rewatching it, I, I sit there and I'm like, how did this? If if this movie is this bad and it got released, that Batgirl movie must be an abomination. <laughs> like, like it was. So I I don't want to go like shot by shot, scene by scene this yeah. movie, but I have to just bring up this opening sequence. And and there's a lot of things that I really noticed. As a filmmaker, as a as someone that teaches film, someone that's watched a lot of movies in the past, right? He leaves the Batcave in the Batmobile. There's a huge crowd of people where Two Face is robbing that safe from what's called the 50th floor of some building, right? Batman repels down, but he drove <laughs> in the car. So why? He's not Spider Man. How did come from top to bottom but the, and, so, that's the thing the entrances and exits of batman in this movie are fantastic he's always <laughs> flying down and then when he leaves he's jumping down farther into yeah. tunnels and uh, into the sewer <laughs> well no, there's no rhyme well, to, to your point like and that's one of the funny things that i was really thinking about today now re-watching it again you know as you and i always call through the 30-year prism you know re-watching this is like this movie on the whole, and again, to a kid, I loved it. It was awesome. It was like everything it needed to be. But then when you put like your thinking cap on and start thinking about like motivations, not only of characters, but like, why would this scene be in the movie? It's a lot of vignettes of things happening, mm -hmm. but there's not a lot of reason between it, you know? And so I'll bring up because you just mentioned like this great like Batman escaping in an awesome way. So they have that car chase scene, jumping back to our car chases, where Two-Face is, is after him and he uses that essentially Batmobile grappling hook to grapple to the wall and go up it. Yes. But then when you sit back and think about it, it's like, yeah, that's awesome. And he escaped them. But why would Batman be escaping Two-Face? Why would he not be hunting down Two-Face? You know what I mean? So like, there's a lot of stuff in this movie. And I like, you know, in the middle of like the scenes where the Riddler and Two-Face are going out for the first time and like, you know, starting their robberies to start building their money up to, to, you know, get the box out there everywhere. It'll also just cut to scenes of like Robin interacting with Alfred back at the house, you know, and it's like, it's kind of jarring because it's sort of like, oh, they're, they're robbing these people. And it's not a montage of them robbing things. It's like, oh, it has to go back to him being like, hey, so what's in that closet? Oh, that's where we keep the China or, 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 or Master Wayne's dead wives or whatever, you know, like, you, know <laughs> you know, sort of thing. But, like, there's a lot of stuff in this movie, and this is where I will agree with Michael wholeheartedly, that as an adult and somebody that's, like, not checking my brain at the door, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that just makes no sense. Like, it's just there to be action set pieces or or visual set pieces with no real reason or no, you know, like, with, with motivations that don't always add up, you know? Yeah, the, yeah. the book, Peter David tried to help that along because the book obviously deals so much more. That That is where... 
Two Face, Harvey Two Face, cringe. Yes, Harvey Two Face is is uh like shortchanged. Is like he really, really blames Batman. He really, really wants him dead, and he says it a lot in this movie. But like it, it doesn't ever play as real. Like you don't believe it. But he's always trying to find ways to kill Batman, even though that's his agreement with Riddler. Like, no, I'm not going to do it. It's time to take a break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Manscaped. If you haven't heard already, it's Smooth Sack Summer. When you're playing in the summer sun, make sure you're Manscaped from pubes to bum. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) This is the summer to keep your balls cool while still looking hot with manscaped the leaders in below the waist grooming are making sure we all have a ball this summer by giving our pants partners everything they need to stay fresh dive headfirst into smooth sack summer by going to manscaped.com for 20 percent off and free shipping with the code wizard 20 which my cousin just told me he ordered as well oh yeah i mean this is the season man like they're saying and you know who's the king of summertime manscaping michael it's Namor, the Submariner. His Atlantean Speedo leaves very little to the imagination, and dude always looks smooth when he's battling the villains of the Deep Blue Sea. Imperious Rex. Namor obviously hooked himself up with Manscaped Performance Package 4.0, and it's time you do the same. It has everything you need to prepare that summer bod. Manscaped has built the ultimate grooming bundle for your summer grooming. Their Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to its advanced skin-safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor, a new multifunction on-off switch to engage travel lock. That's kind of cool. And gives you the ability to turn the 4,000 Kelvin LED spotlight on and off when needed for more precise shaves. I'll just tell you, Michael, like, I busted out my equipment for the summertime. You know, it's getting hotter i gotta have less hair on the body you know just trying to keep it uh, nice and cool around these parts i'm excited both of those pieces of equipment are just so easy to use that's the best part i don't have to like prep anything i'm just like nope it's ready to go it's a smooth experience all the way around i gotta say also the battery lasts a long time like if you charge this it will last you several uses before you need to recharge it as well which i find very interesting did i mention this trimmer is waterproof too Mm -hmm. each lake or shower this razor will devour even the strongest pubes. And once you have the perfect haircut, you can use Manscaped's liquid formulations to keep that freshness, even at the hottest summer barbecues. Most importantly, use the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant to stay cool in the heat with a soothing aloe vera formula. It's the best in the business for below-the-waist freshness, and this clear-drying formula will keep looking good while smelling good. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0. The Manscaped Boxers, which I wear quite often, they're very very comfortable and the shed travel bag wearing sandals with some nasty toenails during the summer months take a look at the shears 2.0 
a luxury nail grooming kit. This kit includes stainless steel nail cutters, tweezers, and grooming scissors. So with the Performance Package 4.0, your balls will be ready to impress, but make sure you cover the rest with the Shears 2.0. So how do you go from Imperious Rexy to Imperious Sexy? Go to Manscaped.com now. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code WIZARDS20 at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code WIZARDS20 at Manscaped.com. It's Smooth Sack Summer, geeks. Get on board or get left behind. I'm still going to hold on to this beginning scene. Another minute. Just, just take this ride with me for a minute. He, he okay? can't drop it, folks. He I needs can't. to get through it. <laughs> the opening, like, eight to ten minutes of this movie is so bad, I almost turned it off. Because <laughs> we, we get Batman rappelling down. He meets Chase Meridian for the first time who useless Commissioner Gordon, here, I'm going to have this therapist just hang out at a crime scene with us. Yeah, I brought her in for, you know, because that would ever happen. But Nicole Kidman's voice in a lot of these scenes is ADR'd, and you can hear it because it's slightly different sounding than their audio. Like, they had to re-record her audio. I I almost wondered if she was, like, slipping into, like, an Australian accent, which she does a few times in the movie, and they had to re-record her audio, and you could hear that it's different if you listened very, very closely. And that drove me nuts. And then we get inside the vault, right? I love the part where, like, they shoot up the elevator. He comes through. That's cool. It's fun, yeah. you know. But we get inside the vault, right? And he's there. But to your the... point, he's now repelled down a building and then come up an elevator. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Again, logistics, you know, you got to check your brain to the door for this movie in a lot of cases. <laughs> but this Batman is also very smart and very dumb at the same time. <laughs> He goes inside the safe and he's like, it's a trap. Oh yeah. no. And the, and the thing closes. And the actor that they got into this scene, <laughs> he and the reporter lady with the wacky glasses are the worst actors <laughs> I've ever seen. It's boiling like acid. Yeah, it's I was going to say, like, you got to drop like the clip in right here. Oh no, it's boiling acid. Well, the <laughs> thing is, that, so that guy looks like Sweet Chuck from the Police Academy movies. Like, he's like this 40-year-old <laughs> guy. And at the end, they're like, don't worry, son, you'll be okay. Like, they talk to him like he's some sort of like 20-something night security guard. Like, it, that part makes no sense. You know Can I throw out my other favorite character from that scene? And I think it's that scene, because I think Chase is down below too, right? She's kind of witnessing this whole thing. Yeah. Is the guy that comes up behind her and goes, Batman! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He points in the sky. It's Batman. So, ah. so <laughs> now again, logistics make no sense. So Tommy Lee Jones or Two Face is there, locks him in the cage. Fifteen seconds later, he's up in a helicopter in the top of the building, pulling the things. How did he get all the way to the top of the building and in the elevator and in the helicopter? And then he pulls the thing out and it rips the thing out. Okay, fine. It rips the safe out. I find that very hard to believe that that safe would weigh that helicopter down. No, no question. The biggest problem with it is, is, you know, he pops out the guy's hearing aid and it makes that like sound. I was like, I need that hearing aid. And he, he, he opens the safe in five seconds, opens the lid. And then he has his little torch and he shoots the grappling gun to bring this safe back. There's no way he didn't have any calculations, no math. He just pointed, fired, and this thing had the perfect trajectory to swing right back to where it came from. And I'm just like, 
that's it. <laughs> I'm out. No, I, I gotta say, I love some of the gadgets though in this scene. Like, I love the the thugs with the knife gauntlet things. Like, they're just like sticking out over. But in the comic and in the book, there was a bat gadget that is not in this movie. They must not have been able to make it work. But both of them show and describe like this glue stuff that Batman shoots out, and it's supposed to capture all the thugs so they can't run and can't move. And I could instead, be wrong. Yeah. I think that's in the video game. <laughs> oh okay so they incorporated i think it he uses that gadget yeah because <laughs> here they just like there's two guys that are like t- the one guy's being tased and then he throws yeah. the other guy into him and that was supposed to be some sort of goo that he was <laughs> trapping him in but i, I want to mention michael so because we, we haven't talked too much about her in this but this is my favorite nicole kidman performance I think she looks the best. I love her like noir style, like femme fatale, even though she's not like evil. I actually think that would have been an awesome twist for the movie if she was like helping out Harvey or something like that, you know, like that would have been really interesting. But either way, like I just, I just love her performance in this. She's fascinating to me. Like I've seen her in a lot of things, but this is the one where I just feel like she jumps off the screen in a big way. I do think this is one of her best roles. I do think she looks breathtaking and she's, steals every scene that she's in, especially with Val Kilmer. I think their chemistry isn't that great. I don't buy their chemistry all that much. What I do like about her is they kind of almost made her like Grace Kelly in a way. You know, even with her hair. Veronica Lake. Yeah, just that classic. You know, like an Ingrid Bergman kind of a look and all that kind of stuff. I do dig it. I think she's really good. I think she would have been better with a different guy playing Bruce Wayne Batman. Because... He's just so, I don't want to say one dimensional, but he's just, he's a little flat in a lot of scenes and she's really selling it. And I just don't buy their chemistry. Yeah, I, I just wonder because like I, I agree that yeah, Val Comer is very one note in all this. He's just gonna play it like this, whether he's in yeah. costume or out. He's pretty much the same. Yeah. But like I, I know that there was a lot of tension on the set with him and Joel Schumacher, and they fought a lot. He wasn't happy in the costume, he said in his documentary, but just in general, he didn't feel like he got to act at all. And I guess like I wonder if that that's just him, like this is my rebellion. Like I'm just gonna play it flat and uninteresting. I mean, my man. understanding of Val Kilmer until at least more recent years is that he He's always been kind of a pain in the butt to work with. Like a lot of people have said that about him over time. I think he's just one of these actors that's kind of like, you know, drinking his own Kool-Aid, you know. I will say, at least as far as she goes, it's a tough act to come in right after Michelle Pfeiffer did what she did in Batman Returns, which is maybe the highlight of that whole movie, frankly. You know what I mean? Just an awesome character. And I don't really know, maybe, Michael, you have an idea of why Selena Kyle essentially didn't carry over into this and that he moved on to Chase Meridian. You know, she kind of pay, she pays passing homage to like, oh, you know, like maybe it would work better if I, you know, was wearing like vinyl and had a whip, you know, and it's like, you know, sort of interesting um, that they kind of tossed in that throwback because in some ways you could separate out the first two movies from this movie, and it could be as if they were rebooting the whole franchise, yeah, but they did a reboot, throw yeah. that little cookie crumb backward, you know? So, but she I mean, is really good, but the the funny thing for me with that character, one, I, the, here's on the interesting and the good side. I think when she's got her psychologist hat on, she's awesome, because like it's like a really fun angle, and it's like kind of like early into, you know, superhero movies, being able to like, psychologically take a look at somebody and that she's trying to get to 
the 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 core of like well what makes up what makes a guy dress up like a bat and do this thing or or you know like you know all the sort of stuff that's going on throughout it it's a cool angle and i'm glad that they added that in i almost wish they had done more with that and again talking about those deleted scenes there's this cool deleted scene where like batman or bruce wayne whichever finally like confronts like what he's been talking about all movie like the you know like the death of his parents and everything like in the form of like this giant demon bat. Have you ever yeah. seen the picture Absolutely. of this? Yeah. It's awesome. It's like, you know, like seven, eight foot tall bat, you know, sort of creature. I wish we had seen that. It was a deleted scene though. But when she takes that psychologist hat off and just is like, all right, now yeah. I'm just going to be like this like minx and like, I'm just going to be like going Love after puppy. him. Yeah. yeah. It, it doesn't, it doesn't jive. You know what I mean? Like it just like, it feels like such a weird, like flip of a switch between when she's like really psychoanalyzing him and then jumping into like, oh, hey, I've been dreaming about this moment, like getting you showing up on my on my doorstep and everything like, I don't know. It's so, it's kind of a weird flip. And she does well with it. Like she does extremely well with it. But I wish the character stuck to one of those things or the other, you know. <laughs> so what I will say about this movie and I, I like I said, I really paid a lot of attention and really thought about it as I was watching it. The scenes where it's either they're in Wayne Manor having conversations with Alfred or, you know, the scenes in, in the therapist's office, like the quieter, like dramatic scenes, the movie is really strong in those parts, right? I think that's where Joel Schumacher shines in this movie is these dramatic moments and these quieter moments where they're kind of like just being people and not being superheroes and villains and that kind of stuff. I think it's with the superhero part of it goes off the rails for me in in with with Joel Schumacher and you know I think this is some of the better Alfred stuff in the movies it, it kind of harkens back to the first Batman where he's sort of like a mentor but also like you know you don't have to do this forever kind of thing he also picks on him a little bit because he's just like you know you're quite intelligent despite what people say about yes. you you know stuff <laughs> but like that's that. Alfred though Alfred does the yeah. shots of him like you know it, it's almost you know, there are certain elements of this thing where they hearken to the animated series, too, where Alfred is, you know, the heart or the voice of reason, but also will take jabs at Batman all the time just because he's like, you're a maniac. <laughs> what are you doing? You know. Well, and the other thing I would say, too, on the Alfred front is like Alfred's purpose in this movie is to acclimate us to Robin yeah. becoming Robin, because you know, essentially after his parents die, he has like one or two interactions with Bruce, but really like the rest of the interactions are all with Alfred leading to him ultimately discovering Batman's secret and then, you know, deciding to become partners and all this sort of thing. And it's really Alfred that's pushing that narrative, even to Bruce. Like he's, you know, Bruce is kind of like, no, you're not getting into this. And Alfred's just like, you know, Young men <laughs> look who's talking you know, bend, sort you know? of thing he's he's basically a younger you so uh well you and know. i i love the fact that alfred has learned his lesson he didn't let vicky into the bat cave this time he got <laughs> chastised in the second film and now what's he doing he said no i'm we're guarding this you're not getting down there nobody's gonna know about this you know chris o'donnell has to sneak in that way so i i think that's pretty funny in the book it's a little different because he sneaks in but he doesn't 
doesn't like jump in and fall down the stairs. Like he kind of, he gets his way in on his own. And then Alfred is there working on the Batmobile, being a mechanic for the Batmobile. And he just kind of walks up. He's like, Hey Al. And you're like, uh Oh, and then he takes, he just jumps in the car and you see the whole scene of Alfred saying, no, no, you know? Oh, by the way, we have to mention, you know, back on gadgets, that Bruce Wayne has his Dick Tracy yeah, video Dick watch. Tracy watch. <laughs> yeah, like that cracks me up. Like that, that was so funny. I was just like, can you just use it like it's no big deal? Chase Meridian should be like, what the? Like, yeah, what, know, what do you like, have there? This is, this is a, an Apple Watch, you know, 25, 30 years early. Like, I do like that? that interaction though. Like he took the car, he took the Bentley, the other car. The right? Jag? Says, like the Jag. <laughs> The other car. (laughs) I got to give them like, there's some writing in there like that. Again, it's not like the deepest writing, but it is funny. You got to give it that. Yeah, and um, obviously, like, Bat- the legacy of Batman and Robin tarnishes this movie a lot, and you forget, like, all the psychological stuff we're talking about is in there. There are those serious moments with, you know, Chris O'Donnell as Robin and all those things, which they're quieter, they, you know, they're they're maybe melodramatic, but at least they're there. And whereas Batman and Robin is joke, 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 joke. Oh, super sad scene with Alfred once. Joke, 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 joke. You know, like, so, like, they overdid the comedy in Batman and Robin, but this one is pretty balanced, except for well, just... That's why I say, and I know Mike doesn't feel the same, and that's fine, because he's a Batman purist, so he's allowed to have that. It's that, like, walking the line I was talking about before. They kind of keep going back and forth between the two, and they're kind of got, a, a, in my mind, a decent balance going back and forth. Yeah. Whereas once we get to uh, Batman and Robin, like you say, like... They just go like right past the line over the other side and fall down the cliff. You know, it's just it's just poor, awful jokes the whole time, you know. So let's talk about Robin for a little bit. Right. Because, you know, that the scene at the circus is one of the I think one of the stronger scenes in the movie. It's it's an interesting scene. I want to just point out that, like, I think in this particular Batman movie, more people find out that he's Batman than any other movie combined. Like he even says up and yells that he is Batman. Well, then he ju- yeah he swings into the center ring to fight and the thugs. You couldn't have had a piece people. of fabric, yeah, and right. put it over like, your face. Like, yeah. Gee, why is why is Bruce Wayne beating up all those guys? How can he do that? How does he do that? But you know, the thing that disappoints me about this scene is Two Face shoots the family and they fall. Whatever. But later on, they hearken back to Bruce Wayne says two shots rang out of the dark. He shot a machine gun. That wasn't two shots. <laughs> and, and besides that, I just, again, I wanted to go back to the animated series. I think the way they do the animated series with Tony Zuko yeah. and that whole Robin origin with Dick Grayson is just so masterful that, like, I would have figured out a different way entirely to tell that origin because you can't compare to how beautiful that whole that two-part episode was in comparison to this, you know, 10 minutes. Well, it's the same thing they do at Batman and Robin. You know, they take the Mr. Freeze, the Emmy Award-winning episode, and then they tr- barely adapt it, you know, for Mr. Yeah. Freeze's story in there. And like, but yeah, but like, you're, you're bringing up a very good point there because, yeah, Robin's Reckoning, that's a two-part episode that is masterfully handled. And here, they did exactly what they did in Batman 89. The villain of the piece is the origin villain for this character. Yeah. He killed his parents. You know, Joker killed Bruce Wayne's parents. Okay, Two-Face killed Dick Grayson family it's just like ah it's too short too much of a shorthand not complicated enough it's funny it's a little bit like i mean not exactly the same you know how many times we've seen martha's pearls fall to the ground it's like a tough nut to crack getting robin into batman it's like he either almost has to be there 
as is and you just accept all right batman and robin are a thing it's like they did an okay job bringing him in and i like that they paid homage to how we've seen you know robin become robin in the comics with you know the flying graysons and the parents fall to their death and you know like he joins batman whatever but at the same time and i it's kind of the case with a lot of these movies and i it becomes this thing where it's like well we have to have two villains we can't just do one we have to have two well that means like we have x amount of screen time that we need to develop batman more we now need to develop chase we need to develop the riddler and two-face and now we're going to throw robin in on top of that and there's just not enough screen time to do that with everybody. So, like, Robin is very one-dimensional in this, in so much as that he's a mad young person because somebody killed his parents and he wants revenge. But there's not, like I said, there's not that interaction between him and Batman and really getting to the, you know, the gritty, you know, this happened to me, but I don't want the same life for you. It's sort of just, like, all passive. It's just like, we, like I said, we keep getting these little vignette scenes of like robin interacts with alfred then he does a thing where he does a backflip and gets into the back cave then he you know it's just like then he ninja steals laundry. a car and, and goes off and like you know yeah exactly yeah, the ninja laundry thing i mean it's cool <laughs> but it's it almost feels like something out of ninja turtles or something like that also where robin or you know before he's robin it's, it's dick and bruce and like he's doing this training on one of those training dummies and then bruce like shows him like i can kick this thing in half like <laughs> you know you gotta respect me a little bit you know so there, there there is a little bit more but yeah most of it is just like bruce yelling at him and you don't want this for you and blah 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 and it's just like i'm gonna do this with or without you which again makes sense but it just doesn't play from a 23 year old guy who should yeah. be a 16 year old who you know you would I be honestly, worried about him exactly if they had found and it you know you, this is how film and tv always goes they usually always cast somebody a little bit older so they're not dealing with laws about how long somebody can work during the day etc but if they had cast somebody you know you brought up leonardo dicaprio earlier i don't know how he would have been as a robin but i do know he had a very young face at that point if you think yeah. about jack and titanic you think about him in romeo and juliet he can play a teenager really well you know who would and, have been pretty, pretty good toby mcguire uh, <laughs> but, but toby mcguire doesn't have bad boy we saw spider-man 3 when he tried to play a bad boy you know but like he, he, <laughs> and his he, back would have been worse earlier you know <laughs> but he could have been a good dick grayson because he's got that like sweetness to him and if they had written it differently yes if it was classic dick grayson he would have been perfect i agree actually but not. i'll tell you again to adam's point right at the beginning i wish they had done tim drake instead of instead of dick you know it just it doesn't i think a it would have been more appealing to people who are currently reading that comic and you know like any like average moviegoer at that point like if they're like oh hey it's robin tim drake like I'm curious how many of them are going to like think back to like Batman 66 and be like, wait, wasn't his name Richard Grayson? You know, like, well, but also like, like the origin of Dick Grayson being a trapeze artist, people don't go to the circus anymore in the thirties yeah, yeah. and forties. Like that was still a thing. People I don't go know why anybody now. in Gotham goes to anything involving a clown, frankly, you know, <laughs> so like, but here's the funny thing about that. Like with in particular, the way that they wrote or maybe the way Chris O'Donnell portrays it, he has, Hints of Dick Grayson, hints of Tim Drake, but a lot of it is Jason Todd. That attitude, yeah. The anger, the car element of it, like the you know he loves fixing cars and sealing cars and stuff like that. And so the least popular Robin, they they (laughs) use that model. It feels I felt a lot of Jason Todd in this role. Wait a minute, (laughs) they missed the mark on that one a little bit. I will say the mask is always, I felt is a little too big 
Yeah, like, yeah you, that's you want huge it to be the there. more domino mask. Michael so, Lyons. Michael, I do have a question for you though, like because there is at least what appears to be quite a bit of computer you know, CGI embellishments in this movie. Like mm-hmm. there's a scene like when they're going into the Wayne Tech building and like you see all of Gotham. And I th- I always in my mind thought it was uh, models, but that looks very CG to me. Like just the dimensions oh, of a, it all. There's a lot of really bad dollars, dollars to donuts. It's a miniature. Uh, just because yeah. again, like around that time, 95, I don't know that they've got the I mean, I would have to go and look at it again because I, I wasn't like mm-hmm. focusing in or paying too much attention on that. But I would venture to guess it's miniatures and they might have like then like added some layers on top of that to kind Maybe, of do yeah. some more well, like lighting I, embellishments uh, and things like that. I, I but... honestly think the, um, the the top of the Riddler layer is all visual effects. It's all CGI. That's not miniatures at all, I think. I think that's all. Yeah. I mean, I do also, I like that one scene when Batman is jumping out of the party when Two-Face comes in and shakes things up and he jumps out the window and the ca- I love the camera work, how it's above him and then it goes below him and looks back up and then it goes, goes up again. like that. And that, again, I don't know how they shot that because that, again, looks like a CGI figure of Batman that is, but it's, it's got to be some sort of composite. But like, there's just, there's so much dynamic imagery in this movie that when you go back to the Burton movies, they're in enjoyable but they are very static and they're very stark and they're very just kind of like uh you know i just want to show you these weirdos i don't really care how cool it looks while i'm showing it to you and schumacher is so into like we're going to excite you and we are going to get your attention you know maybe too much maybe it takes away a bit but i i just feel like he amps it up in a way that i did not find in this movie to be distracting i found it to be in the service of the style of story they were selling where i was just like this is pretty cool yeah, I mean, I think they're going for bombast in this movie. And you mentioned it earlier with the um, like the vehicle chase scenes. There's a lot of frenetic camera work and a lot of frenetic editing. So the thing that I, I appreciated about this movie in particular, because we, we've said this before, like Batman Returns, they made the city of Gotham feel very small. It's like literally yeah. just like, the, just like the, the town square where this Gotham feels much bigger. Like it feels massive and i really appreciate that the one thing that i had a huge question mark about this movie funny enough it's a riddler question mark but um, (laughs) no pun intended but you know we see them go on their little crime spree but how long does it take him to manufacture all those boxes (laughs) make all that money buy an island that is on a hydraulic lift that raises him up you know 50 stories up like, how long was this crime spree? And, and whatever was going on with that island, it had time to get rusty, too, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, they, salt, the salt air, you know. Salt yes. air. I don't know if they say it in the movie. In the book, they say it over and over again that it was called Claw Island. And I don't know what that is in reference to at all, but it was called Claw Island is what he I was buying. I almost got the impression that, like, because in the beginning of the movie, when the, the helicopter crashes into the Statue of Liberty, it's almost as if he bought the Statue of Liberty Island and made his own building there. But they just almost Ooh, I mean, it's that. interesting enough that the Statue of Liberty exists in Gotham in this, in this particular Gotham version. Now with Lady Gotham, yeah. <laughs> and then in, in the book version also, Two-Face 
purposely runs into one side of her face to make her match him because he's going to go on this you know big spree so he's like oh my lady let's make you match me and that type of thing so that that was on purpose not just the accident that it looks like in the movie but you know the one character we really haven't talked about though is jim carrey as the riddler my understanding is that he got paid the most of any actor at this point like he broke the ceiling with batman forever with his paycheck like he had he had that run like we mentioned you know ace ventura dumb and dumber the mask he's like the biggest thing and so they get him in there and he is basically just doing Jim Carrey's greatest hits in this movie. Like if yes. a kid asks you, hey, what's that Dr. Robotnik from the Sonic movies? Why do people like him so much? You show him this movie and be like, this is what he did. And, just, and also the Grinch. He's basically doing the same stuff he does in the Grinch in a lot of ways too. But what do you guys feel? I mean, obviously Frank Gorshin's Riddler is so iconic for being very manic. How do you feel about Jim Carrey's performance? So again, this is another one where you have to kind of think about how you were thinking about Jim Carrey in 95 versus now. You know what I mean? I think he's always been one of these love him or hate him type people. You know what I mean? Like even when Ace Venture and things like that, there were people that like watched that and were like, this is the funniest guy ever. And others that were like, so what? He's bending over and talking out of his butt. This is stupid. You know, like, <laughs> And I, I think it's just always been the case with him. But as a Riddler character and the Riddler is one of these characters that has been portrayed in so many different ways throughout media. You know, like you've kind of ultimately ended up with this, and I think it's all born out of, you know, the Frank Gorshin look, this kind of like suited with like the little bowler hat with a cane, you know, sort of um, version of this character. And there's been different takes on it throughout time. I think his is an interesting portrayal. It is Jim Carrey being Jim Carrey, but if it was Robin Williams in this role, it would be Robin Williams being Robin Williams as the Riddler. So kind of if they went with either of those, you're going to get some version of that with this character. Robin Williams just would have done more impressions and Jim Carrey (laughs) is just doing more pelvic thrusting and stuff. Well, I think it's him being him, but I think he's channeling Gorshin. There's a lot of stuff that you can see kind of like, you know, homage to at times in this character. But I think there's also a lot of just like really weird choices, you know, like his outfit changes, his hair changes, you know, like that they put throughout this. It's kind of like interesting the way they went with that. And again, we've talked about like they're doing a lot of like like interesting visual quirks with how they're dressing their characters up and everything throughout this. But especially how he starts off to where he ends up is so interesting you know and in a way i think he steals the movie you know what i mean like i think you know certainly like there's a lot of like individual scene stealing happening with different characters throughout but if you look at this movie on the whole and try to think about what you remember most about this i think you're gonna find is jim carrey as the riddler yeah you know well in the marketing too like the trailer the one thing that i remembered going into the theater is riddle me this riddle me that who's afraid of the big black bat like that was like burned in my brain yeah and you know i i think they wanted somebody like this in there to do just that you know to kind of make it like a big draw and to get a lot of people in the seats and i think that he was doing that at the time with his movies that he had coming out you know so I fall on the side of liking him. And I, again, this is why I say like, well, why do I like this movie more than the other ones? Tonally, is it better than the others? I don't know. Not necessarily, but I, I think this one's fun. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's definitely like a popcorn flick. I like him. And then, 
the flip side to that to that coin, maybe small pun intended, <laughs> is is you know the Two Face character sort of acting way out of the realm of how that character would act. And I think that's maybe their mistake here is like, you know, if you think about, let's take another Tommy Lee Jones pairing in Men in Black and you put Tommy Lee Jones opposite of Will Smith. And this is, you know, like other movie minutia, but uh, Tommy Lee Jones wanted to play the role silly. He wanted to play it funny. And they're like, no, 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 no. K needs to be very deadly serious. And that will be funny because it's bouncing off this other guy that's got all these quippy, you know, kind of nature. And I think they could have done a better job with this if he had been that darker, more mentally unstable, you know, not like quite so like campy version of of Two-Face. They're both in a way, I think Tommy Lee Jones in particular is playing it more like the Joker. A hundred percent. I think I think he saw the first movie and it was either A, an acting choice or B, that they're like, you know what? Jack Nicholson and the Joker worked out real well. Let's kind of try and repeat that, you know, a bit. And I think he's doing his best Joker impression, to be honest, at times. And it, it doesn't always, you know, there's times where the character is fun and it makes sense. And then there's others where it's just like it's bizarre, bizarre choices. I mean, I do like the, the all his sets being, you know, split in half. I love Sugar and Spice, get Drew Barrymore in there, get Let's Debbie Mazur. Yeah. Drew Barrymore Debbie has, Mazur, the yes. small, has the smallest role. Drew Barrymore is so minor in this movie. <laughs> but yet every scene she's in, she's great in it. Yeah. So, so minor. Is this her first big role? I'm trying to remember. Barrymore? Wow. I think it was one of her first. (laughs) You mean as an adult? No, like as like an actress. I think she was. Oh, she was uh... in E.T. That was like her. Yeah, Firestarter. Firestarter wasn't huge, but yeah, it was a starring role at least. But yeah, but like, yeah, she definitely like had E.T. and that was like, oh, okay, everybody knows who Drew Barrymore is. She goes on to host Saturday Night Live when she's like eight years old or something. Yeah, like like that that was how big a she phenomenon she was. David Letterman thing where she yep. like, you know in the yeah, her nineties, you know, kind of like wild party. I'm just trying to think thing. of where she breaks out though, right? Because like like I'm looking through her IMDB here and it's like a lot of like little minor roles, you know. Yeah, I mean, really, like to me, yeah, she's in like Wayne's World too, you know, and all that. But like I to me, I feel like it's when she does the wedding singer and then I never been kissed singer. ever after. These are or, all my uh, wife's scream. favorite movies. She yeah. loves Drew Barrymore. Fever pitch, maybe not as much. You know, you got your Jimmy Fallon, he'll drag down any movie. But <laughs> you know, but like I'm just saying, like that's definitely her her trajectory here. But it, it is it is just fun to see her in this movie. You're just like Drew Barrymore of all people. Okay, so I, I guess like when we look at the movie as a whole, let's say as we get to the ending, do all the pieces feel like they fall into place by the end? Like Michael, do you have a problem with? Batman essentially killing Two-Face, like setting him up to die. Like he knows what he's doing. He's on a ledge that if he's reaching for coins, he can't possibly steady himself. Like, how do you feel about that? So I'm fine that he killed Two-Face for a couple reasons. One, I think the portrayal was bad and I didn't want to see it again. <laughs> Get him out of here. <laughs> and two, he did it so that Robin wouldn't have the ability to try to kill him himself. Well, and, and the other he, thing think you got to remember here too is like Batman Returns, Batman was like killing people in that movie. Oh, yeah. you know? So if you're going off of that continuity, this is a pretty light, you know, uh, body lit count list here. You know, so Well, here's the thing though. Bad. The original ending, which they reshot for Michael's purpose, is that Robin does kill, kill Two-Face. Him. 
Like he actually, he, it's basically the same method, but Robin is the one doing it and basically just lets him fall and die. Like, you know, throws the coin at him and then Harvey, but Harvey has like this moment of realization right before he dies. Like I never wanted to be this. And then he lets himself fall and kind of kills himself. It's kind of a little bit of both, you know? So I don't know. I think that was too psychological. It's not as Well, it is interesting because he does have a character beat like that in like, uh, you know, a couple scenes before him when he first encounters Robin before Robin decides to save him and not kill him, where he's like, just end it, I, I deserve to die, you know, sort of thing. And he kind of has like this like out-of-body moment for how he acts the rest of the time where he's like, you know, just end it, just, you know, just kill me. And then obviously that flips back uh, a moment later and doesn't come back again. But <laughs> it, it was an interesting uh yeah, like they hint at there. it, but they never hit it hard yeah. enough. And I think it's just because Tommy Lee Jones's portrayal, he doesn't ever really flip into Harvey, really. Yeah. Like if he had had more times where you see like the actual back and forth between the personalities, but it's it's very rare. He just makes reference to things Harvey yeah. might prefer and like, but he doesn't he play it out. Himself as as we the whole we, time. Yeah, he's yeah, almost got like yes. a venom thing going on. I thought it was but, interesting, <laughs> but I feel like Two Face doesn't really refer to himself as we. It's more yeah. of like you know. I do like how he leans heavily into the yin and yang sort of thing, like all the cars literally on his parachute. <laughs> yeah, I, I do like that. Now the biggest gripe well i have a lot of gripes but one of the, uh, another gripe that i have about this movie is yes so two-face is dead he knows who batman is riddler has a nervous breakdown and he doesn't exactly know who batman is but sugar and spice know who batman is oh because she puts the thing back into the machine i guess she's yeah, yeah and and she's and they're standing there when they're talking about who are you gonna save batman's junior partner or bruce's love of his life they're right there in the scene like they heard it. They know that he's Batman. Yeah, you don't see them go to jail or anything else, so nope, we, don't, we just... don't know. Also, one point we have to bring up is, how do you guys feel about in pretty much every movie, Batman just can't wait to tell a girl he's attracted to, I, I'm Bruce Wayne and Batman. <laughs> I just got to tell every single movie he's got to do uh, it. Actually, I will give the Batman, the Matt Reeves Batman, a lot of credit because you see that he wants to tell Catwoman, but he doesn't, and he holds it back repeatedly. Yeah. Um, and that's the first time in any of these Batman movies where he doesn't give up who he is to somebody, you know? Well, again, this is like what cracks me up with, like, you know, the fact that they weren't able or or whatever to carry over Selina Kyle and, and kind of progress their relationship at all. That, again, it's, it's one of the more interesting facets of this movie is the psychological look that they're taking with this character and that he's almost coming quasi to a point where he's like, I don't want to do Batman anymore. And he, for like a minute decides that he's not going to, and that he's going to connect with her until of course they break in and happy Halloween, you know, and like, you know, kidnap them in the whole nine yards, which by the way, where the heck do those little kids live that they walked like the miles and miles and miles to get to Bruce <laughs> they, Wayne's door? They, they I hope he was at least giving out whole Snickers or something. There's not a gas station for miles, so this that's got to be the Gotham City <laughs> orphanage. Puts him on a bus, takes him to Wayne Manor. Like you got to get the good stuff, you know? Yeah. Why does Wayne Manor not have a camera at the front gate? Like. <laughs> But <laughs> well, I, I think it's fascinating that, you know, because Batman Returns, obviously a Christmas movie. I never knew Batman Forever was a Halloween movie until rewatching it this time. But also technically, Batman 89 is a Halloween a... movie, too. There's that deleted scene that's on the trading card. It's Halloween, but it's also more like Thanksgiving. What they said with, you know, this is a little deep cut, real nerd stuff. 
when they were writing Batman 89, they said that they imagined Gotham City being New York City above 108th Street, 110th, on the coldest Thanksgiving Eve in recorded history. And that's how they based Gotham City in 89. And I sort of looked at the movies like this. 89 is Thanksgiving. Returns is Christmas. This is Halloween. Batman and Robin is like springtime or summer. Fourth of July. Yeah. Fourth of July. And they make everything cold, you know. Yeah. That that makes sense. And also, Pete, just to follow up, why was it Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman in Batman Forever? Why didn't they do that? The real reason was, so Tim Burton was out, right? And so was Michael Keaton, all of that. But they were developing the Catwoman movie for Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm. So Tim Burton was working on that. So she thought she was getting a solo film. And so that that's the real reason that they didn't you know need to bring her back because they were she was going to get her own story, apparently. But yeah, yeah, then we got did Halle you, Berry. Did you know that in original in Batman Returns, when she fries Max Shrek, she's supposed to have died. Right, yeah. They they added in that, like, pop-up at the end that her stunt double or somebody is wearing the costume to do that. Because she was supposed to die at the end of the movie, but they kind of said, wait, we can't kill Catwoman. <laughs> like... Uh, so I guess like as we're, as we're closing out here, are there any final thoughts? Was there like a moment that just stuck out to you that was either really good? Like Michael, was there something you could appreciate and say, you know, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give it this. But otherwise, like, was there just a fun moment or anything we want to highlight as we, I don't know if I'll, let, I'll let you two gentlemen go first. It's Batman. <laughs> ah, <laughs> I don't know. It has its charming moments. It has its stupid moments. You know, it it is what it is. It's a popcorn flick. Mike knows I always buy out of of movie reviews in this way. But like, I don't know. You know, it's a product of exactly the time it came out in. And does it hold up versus newer movies? No. But like, you know, looking at a lot of the movies from this era through that way, they they don't always necessarily hold up in the same way. So I, uh, I think it's a fun flick. I think it's worth a watch every once in a while, you know, as far as the older movies go. And it's the last decent one we get before Batman begins. So it's like the last bastion for a little while, you know? Yeah. And I will say, so whenever I think of Batman forever, I saw it in the theater and that was fine. And I was just like, I I liked it, but I don't love it. Like I didn't buy it to own or anything like that. Want to watch it again. And then years and years later, I got the stomach flu terribly and had to go to the hospital for dehydration and all this other stuff. So I'm getting my fluids in me and I had my video set up in my hospital room and it, you know, just happened to be Batman forever was on and I watched the movie and I was just like, you know what? This movie is so much better than I ever gave it credit for <laughs> and rewatching it. Now I fall into the same camp. I just like the artistry of the film is really there. Like Joel Schumacher, we're going to criticize him, you know, for, for making, it goofy make it silly but i think that he did make it so much more accessible and make it a show like like we're saying it's a spectacle it's just it is enjoyable to watch on a visual level if nothing else and i feel like the batman films from burton are maybe more cerebrally enjoyable like you you watch it and you love the performances you love the dialogue you love the dark humor you love all of the little ticks of the characters but watching the movies they don't look that great and so i i 
think if I could just give this movie one plus, it's that visually Joel Schumacher really created something that is just a delight for the eyes. And then I would say 75% of the movie works for me. And otherwise there's a little bit picky things, but overall I, I do enjoy it. Okay. So I will round out our little conversation here. <laughs> here it comes. Um, with things that I hate and things that I like. And I'll start with the things that I hate. I hate the portrayal of Commissioner Gordon in this movie. They really, they had the opportunity to make him have a meaning because they don't really use him in the first two movies. And they just made him kind of like goofy and doofy and 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 aloof. And I bothers me to know him. I've already mentioned the guy in the safe. That guy was terrible. The reporter who they also bring back in Batman and Robin is the worst thing they could ever do to these movies. It's Bob Kane's wife. You know that. Yeah. That's yeah. why she's in it. Yeah. And a bad actress. <laughs> horrible, 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 terrible decision to do that. I do really, really enjoy Nicole Kidman's performance. My favorite part of the movie, there's two things that I love. When Batman crashes through the ceiling at Riddler's party and Riddler goes, yours was good. His was better. <laughs> I love that. And then again, going back to the logo, when toward the end of the movie where they have the bat signal in the sky and they, they laser the question mark in the sky, it's just so visually like captivating. I'm like, that's it. That's that's the moment right there. Those are the things that I love about the movie. Everything else is sort of throwaway, like even the underwater scuba diving fight with Robin and <laughs> shooting a grappling gun underwater and you know i can go on and on about some of the problems or i like gotta the, say batman took some serious financial losses in this film yeah, yeah, he, he, lost he always a loses of, a plane i don't yes. know why he bothers i really didn't like the neon gang fight with 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 dick grayson you know when he goes it's like it's it's just too much black light neon color scheme i don't know what they were going for with that and the other thing about that girl Here's the funny thing about, like, the girl that he kisses, that he rescues, she looks too close to Alicia Silverstone. She does. In my mind, I always thought, that girl's going to become that girl. (laughs) And then she doesn't. You know, it's like, I don't know. But, you know, those are my thoughts. You know, is it the absolute dumpster fire that I believe it is? Oh yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty bad. <laughs> oh come on, we thought we were gonna have that change but, of heart. But at this the is end. this is the problem. If this is a dumpster fire, then what is Batman and Robin? Oh, you know, like to be determined. Gum on the floor I, I, of a subway car. That's what I, that I recorded is. this podcast while having a beer. I'm gonna need a bottle of vodka for that movie. <laughs> Uh, well, it does feel like, yeah, Batman Forever has its fans, it has its detractors. Of course, we have to send a shout out to our buddy, Steven, who is the number one fan of Batman Forever. I, I got a promotional t-shirt that was sent to video stores of Batman Forever with the question mark on it uh, from my um, another podcast I do here on the Retro Network called Rental Return Tales from the Video Store. One of the interviewees sent that to me and I had to go to Steven. So. Subtle name drop there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you guys got Box Office 30? I got other projects. But also, I, I want to point out that, uh, Michael, of course, the best thing about this in the end is the hot toys. Now you have two hot toys. Oh, man. When, and, and honestly, like this figure is pretty cool looking. And I'm really excited to see 
the uh, the sonar suit Batman. That's that's the release. They didn't do the regular costume. They just did the sonar suit, which is kind of oh. a bummer. I would have liked to see yeah. the other one too. It's in the movie so much more. But I guess because the scene where Robin appears is again with the sonar suit, that's why they did it in that way. And actually, you um, know what? That's something I did point out. That is probably the strongest thing in this movie's favor is they 100% justify why he has to wear another costume because yes. Riddler blows up all of his everything costumes. And that everything except for that brand new one. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, then they go overboard that wasn't in the vault. The, yeah. the one that wasn't in the vault, we didn't get that one. Well, he could have um, had the one in the car, I guess, right? But I guess he yeah. put that back in the vault after sure, he was done. Sure. So. so now here's a quick question, and, and maybe nobody's prepared to answer this, but um, we're recording this at a point where the Flash trailer has just dropped, and there's a vault of Batman suits. Has any of us studied yes. if any of these suits from this movie appear in that vault? So no. It's all Keaton-based suit. I, I did a lot of reading about that. So the first one you see is is the Year Zero suit. Like the first one, like almost like how Batman in, in you know the very early 30s, the, in 39, had a gun. It has a gun holster as well. Wow. And, and uh, then the next one is the blue and gray suit. And then you have 89, 92. Then you have a, they did an homage to the underwater action figure suit, the yellow one with the what? Fr- so that's one in there, and then they have an homage to a desert or Mister Freeze suit. They said, "Well, that one I saw looked like it was based on the Zack Snyder Apocalypse." Yeah, like, you yeah, know, it's a, it's a desert one. Yeah, yeah. So those are the suits you see so far. That's wild. Um, but yeah, no. Listen, the movie is it. It is what it is. It is of its era, as Pete has said. You know, it's very much of that time. It's definitely better than Batman and Robin. I would say this movie is probably on par with movies like Thor Love and Thunder. <laughs> there you go. There's some just good, for fun. There's some bad. There's some fun and some just whatever. Yeah. Um, well, speaking I, of fun, uh, I, I think we should mention. So, you know, this is obviously our first uh, outing with uh, 90s Super Cinema. So we hope you enjoyed the conversation here. We have kind of talked to our patrons, Michael, and some of the movies that they would like us to cover. They've talked about The Phantom. Two people said The Phantom. Okay. Who do the, the Phantom? We want to talk Spawn. We want to talk Blade, you know, so so there, there's a lot on the docket here. So we'll probably uh, put that up Patreon poll and let you guys vote and decide what the next one is going to be then. You know, that we Dr. All Mordred, Dr. <laughs> <Eagles>. <laughs> yeah, there's so many choices. So uh, don't don't make us uh, feel too much pain in what we have to watch. But <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you so much, guys, for uh, being patrons and supporting the show. And glad that we got to have this conversation, Pete and Michael, you guys love the movies. I love the movies and uh, plenty more conversation to come. We'll see what this next one ends up being. So that does it for our discussion about Batman Forever. I hope you enjoyed the fun we were having. And just a reminder, we will be back soon enough with another edition of 90s Super Cinema. And this time we'll be talking about The Phantom. Oh, are you ready to slam evil? I sure hope so. But hey, until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.